All right. We're going to, we'll just chit chat here for a second while people stream in because um, I don't want people to miss everything. If somebody in the in the chat could do me a solid and just put the Phillies game on in the in another window and give me scoring updates when they happen, that would be much appreciated. I would consider that a service to the bulwark. Uh, and I want to say before I introduce uh, our, our panelists for the night, um, we're talking about very serious stuff tonight, and I I was a little upset at some of the people in the comments on the newsletter today and uh like i i got my dad voice on um i don't want to get upset with anybody in the comments here in the chat be your best selves lead with compassion lead with kindness don't don't act badly tonight uh, or i will have jim pull the car over okay uh all right that said reminder keep your chat settings set to to everyone if you want people to be able to see you and with that noted, uh, welcome to Thursday Night Bulwark. I'm JVL, and joined today by probably the most high-power panel we've ever had, Ben Parker of the Bulwark. Gave him first billing. See that, Mono? Uh, <laughs> Bill Crystal of the Bulwark. Eric Edelman, not of the Bulwark, but really kind of the Bulwark from our Shield of the Republic uh, podcast, which is my one of my favorite podcasts, maybe my favorite podcast, certainly my favorite weekly podcast. Uh, everybody should listen to it. Also, uh, what, senior non-resident fellow at the Miller Center? Do I have that right, Eric? That's correct, yeah. And uh, a very, very old friend of mine, Tom Jocelyn, who has been all over the place and everywhere, currently is a senior fellow at the Recenter. I don't think Tom and I have seen each other since 2018. It's been a long, long, yep. been a long, long time, but it's good to have you here, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, first, just, I mean, does anybody care? It just moments ago, Steve Scalise has pulled out and he is not going to be the speaker. Surprise, surprise. That's kind of interesting. Uh, does anybody here? Well, you know, we'll make very quickly. Bill, do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, he says he's going to stay as majority leader. And, um, I don't know whether there's some, I don't know. Could, there could be some deal that's been cooked for some interim speaker, Who's accept? But it's hard to see who would be acceptable to the entire conference. I have my keep. Well, who knows what will happen? I think I think all bets are off. And people who I've been pushing the notion that five Republicans should vote for Jeffries, get reserve their right to vote against legislation, have the Democrats organize the House, pass the big supplemental for Israel, Ukraine, uh, and the border, uh, pass keep the government open, and then they can re rethink everything if they want. Even in January, that's not the way the government's usually worked in the U.S., and it probably won't happen. But it makes me think that just generally. All kinds of things could happen that we don't expect to happen right at this point. Discharge petitions, interim speakers, uh, shared speakership, but conceivably a lot of things could happen that we're not used to. Nancy Mesa speaker. Is that in the cards? Yeah, that would be something. Huh? No. Okay. So to com complete the transition of the U.S. from a serious country to a Marx Brothers movie, you know? Okay. Uh, there. There ends the candy. Everything else from here on out is spinach, guys. Um, so last Saturday morning, we all woke up to. Uh, the deadliest attack in Israel since what the Yom Kippur War is that is that right? More Jews killed in a single day than in any day since the Holocaust, I think. Yeah. Um, absolutely horrific. Uh, either an intelligence failure on the Israelis' part, or an intelligence success on the part of Hamas, or maybe a little bit of both. Uh, Israel has started operations to uh, begin its 
retaliation. I don't know if we have a stated goal of being the removal of Hamas, but it feels like that probably is the actual military and political goal here. Um, I guess I just want to go around the horn very quickly and give me your, you know, 30 or 45 second thoughts on the state of play of where we are now. Um, and let's let's start with you, Eric. <clears throat> well, the Israelis have obviously been carrying out um, uh, air operations uh, in Gaza, striking at uh, Hamas um, infrastructure, um, headquarters, other uh, facilities associated with it. 6,000 bombs in six days. That is a lot of ordnance uh, to be dropping. Um, they're also massing forces, and we have every reason to believe that they will go in on the ground for at least some period of time. That will be a very messy, very bloody uh, operation, urban warfare. And Tom is, you know, can talk about this with greater expertise than I, but is is one of the toughest uh, kinds of warfare. I think the big thing that everybody's watching and and concerned about is. Does this expand beyond uh, Gaza? Does do we get a northern front of both Lebanon and Syria? Do we see a, a you know uprising on the West Bank, which Hamas has been calling for, uh, and and does that then precipitate you know Israeli direct um, action against Iran? So we we could be looking, you know, ultimately at a potentially a five front war, if you will. Well, God, Tom, uh, what are your thoughts here? Um, yeah, just to echo what Eric said about the the bomb rate. I mean, six thousand bombs in several days. Um, that's a far greater uh, use of ordnance than the U.S. at its max capacity fighting ISIS or the Taliban in Afghanistan. So, just to give you a sense of the scale of the bombing campaign in Gaza, um, the, clearly, I think they're paving the way for something greater here in the near future. We all we're all anticipating a ground invasion. Um, I I really do wonder what the end game is that they envision because this is very tricky. Um, you know, it's one thing to say you're going to go after Hamas's capabilities. It's quite another to say you're going to try and actually destroy the organization and uproot it. Um, those are two very different things. Um, and you kind of see a little bit of mixed messaging from the Israelis. When I listen to some of the officials, they say we're going to destroy Hamas. Others say we're going to destroy Hamas's capabilities. So I'm really keeping an eye on what are actually the goals of the coming operation. Um, and to echo one other thing that Eric said, um, you know, I was looking back at the reporting we've had over the last few years, going back to 2021. And one of the things that's very striking is that Iran has really built up the capacity of terrorist organizations on four fronts to come after Israel. So you're talking about Gaza, West Bank, Syria, and Lebanon. And really, that is from the jihadi or the Iranian backside of the, the terrorist perspective. That really is the big open question on their side. What's going to be the next move for them? Ben? Yeah, I think the trickiest thing here is if you put yourself, um, if you imagine that you were the prime minister of Israel right now, you're in a terrible situation of needing to tell your people that, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen again, right? That this this is unacceptable and we need to do something to ensure that this isn't a thing that can just happen again in a couple of years, which means basically eliminating Hamas as a threat, which means a ground invasion of Gaza which either means that's not a goal you can accomplish or you accomplish it and then you end up in control of Gaza. And we are right back where the Israelis were in 2004, the year before they decided to pull out of Gaza and throw up their hands. And it's not that dissimilar from where the US found itself in 2004 in Iraq, where it's like, great, you've deposed the problem, you've gotten rid of it, and now what? And 
you know, it's not clear to me that this is a problem that anyone wants. Uh, you know, Egypt has closed its border with Hamas for decades. They don't want to have Gaza as their responsibility. It's not clear the Palestinian Authority that governs the West Bank wants Hamas, you know, wants Gaza as its responsibility, especially in the way it's going to be after a ground invasion. So it's like there are no good options here. Uh, you know, we can we can hope that post uh invasion or post-operation something emerges that is better than this because it's hard to be worse than this, but it might just be the same. Bill, uh, so that's that's a pretty dark view that Ben just gave us. I, it sounds pretty right to me, but also it's weirdly the best case option because it also means that we don't have a wider war, right? As bad as what Ben just spelled out is, that presupposes that we don't also have Iran in direct conflict and Syria and Lebanon, right, and, and the West Bank. Um, are there any good outcomes on on the table here, or are we really just looking at what is the least horrible scenario? Well, with wars, it's always you know it's, it's all scenarios are are bad, obviously. So uh, it's, it makes sense in a way to be pessimistic and not brilliant or something, which no one is obviously in this case, especially after the ghastly events of last weekend. I would just say a couple of things: wars are unpredictable. Uh, the, the actual course of wars are famously unpredictable, but also the implications and effects of wars on international politics, but also on domestic politics in different countries are unpredictable. So we have a certain view of Gaza. If Hamas run, doesn't run it, it could be just chaos. But I don't know. Is it impossible to clean out the Gaza, the, the Hamas leadership and uh, get some international help and imagine a somewhat more satisfactory solution a year from now, even after casualties on both sides and a lot of destruction and death? I don't mean to minimize that in, in Gaza, but I would come back to the point, uh, other, I guess, Eric and uh, Tom made in particular, the risks of a wider war, and no one's mentioned the U.S. I mean, you know, we have hostages in there. I mean, is it if, if we thought we could get them out, if, or if we thought they were going to be killed, would U.S. special operations teams, I don't even want to speculate too much on this, because now I don't know anything, let me be clear, so I'm not trying to, you know, but you just, I feel even bad to speculating about it, but go in, I mean, could we be in conflict? What if Iran is, turns out to be giving much more direct help? to Hamas as they're holding American citizens hostages. I mean, just all, I, I think the, what if Russia is sort of doing more than we think? I don't know that they are, and I don't want to be one of those who, in a sort of paranoid way says, oh, it's Iran calling every shot or Russia calling every shot. I don't believe that. Or certainly not with Russia, probably not with Iran calling every shot, but still, as Tom said, they've certainly beefed up their terror, their, the terrorist entities they either control like Hezbollah or have strong relations with like Hamas. So I think there's all kinds of um, wild cards here. And I think it's probably one mistake would be to assume there's necessarily going to be some kind of replay of the previous Israel-Gaza uh, incursions into Gaza, which have had terrible dilemmas and, back and consequences on their own. Obviously, this Israeli domestic political consequences. I, I just think it's really the rest of the Arab world, the Saudis, the Egyptians. I mean, all kinds of things could could get triggered one way or the other by side effects of this. But I, I come, the hostages is really a one wild card. I'm a terrible thing, of course, but as well, but that makes it a little different, you know? Although JV, Here, talk, on the, talk to me a little bit about the hostages. Yeah, I was just going to jump in to say uh, on that point, I think the Israelis have done something actually quite smart, which is, you know, uh, they've cut off the, the water and the um, electricity to uh, Gaza. That's led to a lot of outcry 
uh, from, from Palestinians in Gaza, of course, but also some uh, members of the international community saying, oh, you know, this is really terrible. And the Israelis said, give us our hostages back, you know, and then we'll, we'll turn the water and the electricity back on. And that, that is, I think, you know, put the monkey on uh, Hamas's back where it ought to be. Uh, you know, with regard to the release of the hostages. So I, and it's taken off table the question of, oh, well, you can't do anything militarily to us. Uh, and I think that was a very smart thing to do. Tom, can you talk to me a little bit about the Iranian connection here? Um, we, we had the the Wall Street Journal report right off the bat saying that Iran was, was neck deep in all of this. There seems to have been some doubt about the reporting on this and some questions on it. Um, I mean, I imagine all of this is shades of gray because it's impossible to imagine this attack without some Iranian involvement. And so we're really just negotiating about, well, how how significant was it? Can you speak to this for us? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I was going to yield to Tom, but I wanted to say one thing about it, which is you may have seen some stories that uh, suggest that the intelligence community saying the Iranian leadership was taken by surprise uh, by the timing. No one should regard that as dispositive evidence one way or the other about the Iranian role, because one can imagine a, a very deep Iranian role uh, without knowing specifically the timing. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, what I find curious about all this is it's really simple, right? The Israelis were caught off guard. The U.S. was caught off guard by this. And then within a matter of days, you have reporting or guesswork about what was known by the Iranians beforehand, right? We, we don't know what the Iranians knew beforehand. If we had really good intelligence on that, it would have been there would have been warnings to stop it, right? So this, this idea that sort of um, the Israelis have, this, you know, incredibly effective intelligence service, that's, you know, been, been knocked down a few pegs by what we've seen here. And, you know, nobody should think that the American intelligence services are omniscient and have all this perfect insight into the Iranians or anybody else. It's far from it, you know. And so I don't think we actually know what the Iranians knew or didn't know beforehand. But in general, uh, Hamas, you know, has been, you know, I was thinking about this back in the old Weekly Standard days going way back when I wrote a piece about how Hamas was sending this stream of officials to Tehran, you know, over a course of a year. And you could point to that kind of um, relationship, which is very organic at this point between the two, going back a very long time. You know, this is this, you're talking about every every imaginable um, sort of material support you can imagine <laughs> the Iranians have provided to Hamas. So would I would I be surprised if in the future we learn that the Iranians knew more than we think right now, or that some people in the intelligence community think now? I wouldn't be surprised at all. And you know, the other thing is, you know, just go to Khamenei's uh, Khamenei's Twitter feed, right? And look what he was saying <laughs> in the weeks leading up to this. And, you know, anybody looking at that should say, wait a minute, you know, this is a guy who is clearly advocating for exactly this, you know, openly, you know, on X, formerly known as Twitter, you know, why should we assume that he didn't know what was coming, you know? So um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll learn more in the future, but I think everybody should now be disabused of the notion that the Israelis have perfect intelligence or the Americans have, you know, perfect intelligence on top of stuff. Truth is neither one of them do. I, I've been sort of obsessed with the question of Hamas's intelligence capabilities uh, being much more sophisticated than than we think. You know, I we tend to say to want to blame our side, thinking that we should always win. Right. We, you know, we just. But on the other hand, putting together an operation like this with the number of guys you got to train, the just the 
physical weight and volume of supplies that you've got to both procure and then hide and then disseminate leading up to it. There's going to be financial records. I mean, so you imagine they're not just hiding this. They're also painting some sort of counterintelligence picture, right? I mean, they're, they're doing their own counterintel operations to try to distract the, their opponents, us and the Israelis. And that seems like they were more sophisticated than a lot of people assumed. No. Two I mean, things. Can I just add one one thing on that. I mean, just yeah. uh, the, I mean, the places they they attacked Israel proper. They didn't attack the West Bank, which is a partial military governance. Israel proper is a open society. I mean, it, right. you can go to any of these kibbutzes near 500 meters from Gaza as a tourist. You can go as an Israeli. You can go as an Israeli Arab who, you know, 98% of whom are not, 99.9%, let's hope, are not involved in any kind of consorting with terrorists. But they also have relatives who might, they don't tell something. Tell, and it, was, it wouldn't be hard to discover that these are peaceful kibbutzes that are, you know, full of uh, well-intentioned people, I mean, decent people and living lives and, and down there right by Gaza, assuming that the fence will hold and the barrier will hold, and they, they know they're a little more risk than they're from the middle of the country, but not expecting anything like this. So the degree, I agree with you, your point about the other aspects of intelligence, which are more, you know, interesting and serious in the sense of when they timed it and how they might have jammed some Israeli uh, communications so the military didn't hear about it as quickly as they might have. But it is worth reminding, it's the same way we're vulnerable to terrorism. This is not, you can come to the U.S. and check out how flights, you know, pre-9-11, what the security is on commercial flights yeah. and which ones are flying where and where what's a more vulnerable airport. And they could, in effect, do the same thing for Israel, tragically. Well, can I add a point to that? Just Please. a bunch of what you're saying, Bill. Um, one of the telegram feeds that I follow on this from the Southern Defense Forces for Israel has been putting out uh, documents captured, you know, allegedly or reportedly captured from the terrorists who did this. And some of the evidence that they're, you know, publishing, which of course hasn't been, you know, thoroughly vetted at this point, but seems credible. Um, so it's exactly what you're talking about, where what they did was with one of the kibbutz uh, in particular, they did surveillance on it. They took, um, you know, they took measure of the place. They figured out how it operated, how the security operated, you know, who was around, how many people were there. And according to some of the documents that have come out, so that about a year ago, they made the plans to actually attack and show, you know, and they divided up in a squad. Now, none of this is, none of this is super sophisticated, right? But it, but it does show a level of foreplanning and intent way in advance of the actual attack that is, is noteworthy. Second thing I would say real quick on this is that what I was struck by is somebody who's consumed an unfortunate amount of jihadi media through the years. Um, was was how much of they were ready to have the propaganda war fight the media war here. They had a lot of propaganda ready to go. Everything from you know constructing the paragliders and practicing and getting ready with them to you know building the rocket launchers and getting ready to um, GoPros that were on uh, a lot of the different terrorists who went into these different uh, residential areas um, to even even a seven hour live stream on Facebook. Uh, showing uh, the actual attack, so they had a, they had a very it's you know again not a high level sophistication do these these day this day and age, but they were ready to go for the media war, which is very important in all this from their perspective. You know, there are two other things that were at work here, I think. And Tom, I'd be very interested in your reaction to this. First of all, it does appear that Hamas was engaged in much better operational security than they have traditionally been involved in. So the Israelis were not picking up anything on on SIGINT or communications intelligence uh, chatter on cell phones that 
uh, would have given away some of the planning of this. And the second thing is uh, Reuters had a very uh, good story uh, two days ago uh, about the very sophisticated deception and denial operation that the uh, Hamas folks were engaged in. They went to great lengths to convince the uh, government of Israel, particularly the intelligence services, that they weren't interested in another round. They'd had enough after 2007 and 8 and 2014 and two, 2021, didn't want to fight again, wanted to sort of focus on economic development of Gaza, get more work permits for Gazans to come to the West Bank or into Israel proper to work and, and remit money to help boost the, the Gazan economy. And, you know, um, this is one of those things where uh, on, the, on the Shield podcast, Elliot Cohen said, it's always easier to, you know, to have an influence operation if people want to believe what you're trying to get them to believe. And so for Israeli officials who, you know, obviously would much prefer to believe that this was happening in Gaza than, you know, what did happen, you can see them falling for this very easily. 100%, if I follow up on that real quick. Um... I have a very speculative answer on those, the, the, why their operational security was better or wasn't detected by Israelis. My sense of looking at what we now know about the public, publicly about the operatives who led the actual attack is I think, and this again, very speculative, is that what we may be seeing here is a younger generation of Hamas that the Israeli intelligence services were not as familiar with and that they knew the older generation of Hamas better and had better sources and better spies and that kind of thing in it. And you've even seen a smattering of reports saying that some of the older generation of Hamas was cut out of the planning for this, was cut out of the, 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 the works of this. And why is that all important? Well, one of the reasons why Gaza is such a thorny situation is um, you're talking about, and JBL, you're going to love, I think you'll like this point because you've been obsessed with demographics for so long. There are very few places, as you know, on the planet where the birth rates are increasing, right? We're young like, as God, right? The median age there was like 15. Exactly. Right. And, and if, you look, if you look at the data on um, the demographics of, the, of like the th three of the places where they're the youngest and the birth rates are, are increasing the fastest, they're actually all jihadi hotspots. So you had Afghanistan, Pakistan, where the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are thriving and the Taliban, Al-Qaeda overthrew the government. You have West Africa, where they're, the jihadis there are about to overthrow you know, the, 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 the government establishments there in the military. And you have Gaza. That's one of the top three. And, you know, Gaza skews very, very young. And to me, that speaks to most likely you're dealing with a new generation of Hamas here. I'd just like to add one more point to yeah, this, uh, this intelligence failure, which is, um, you know, you were talking about this on the Shield podcast, which I listened to today. But, you know, to a certain extent, there's um, there's intelligence failures and operational successes. Right. And so the, the old joke is that, like, you know, the people who are actually in charge of making decisions can always blame the intelligence. But we have what looks to me like multiple independent sources reporting that the Egyptians gave the Israelis a tip and said, hey, it looks like something's coming in Gaza. You guys might want to, you know, check this out. Um, you know, a few days is not a ton of time to prepare, but it's enough to get people from the West Bank back to Gaza, right, to get some of the Gaza division back from the West Bank where they've been, you know, moved from their, their station location. Um, and that's not an intelligence failure. That's just, a, I mean, that's just a policymaking failure. That's just yeah. Israeli leadership dropping the ball. Um, and that's going to be on DD's shoulders. So I, I want to go into that a little bit. First, Carl, thank you for your service. You're a great American. Uh, sorry, Carl isn't giving me updates from the Phillies game in the comments. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, so how much stock do we put in that story? When that came out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, 
I, I just thought to myself, wow, this is, I mean, A, all too believable because this is how governments work. Um, but B, also, it seems awfully convenient and seems like the kind of thing that could, would confirm a lot of our priors. You know, I don't think, JVL, we're going to know um, for a while. But one thing about the Israelis is that they are incredibly introspective and self-critical. And, you know, we know that after the uh, intelligence failure in, in uh, you know, uh, 1973, they had a major commission, the Agronaut Commission, which, uh, you know, named names, held people responsible, uh, led to major changes, not only in the intelligence services, and the military, but Israeli politics. You know, the same thing happened after Sabra and Shatila in 1982. Same thing happened after 2006 Lebanon war with the Vinograd Commission. So they will go through this. We will know in the fullness of time kind of exactly what happened and, you know, who who screwed up and who didn't. The only thing I would say about this Egyptian report is it's certainly consistent with the idea of people believing what they want to believe and discarding those things that that are inconvenient, that they don't want to believe. So it's perfectly plausible from that point of view. But the other thing I've learned in these kinds of situations, I suspect Bill from his experience in government knows the same thing as does Tom. Early reports are you know, frequently wrong. And so everything you know that's coming out needs to be treated with an excessive degree of caution. I'll just say just to argue with myself, right? We also don't know the broader context, like maybe the Egyptians send the Israelis one of these things a week, right? And so they're actually not useful. Um, so, you know, there, there's more context we definitely need to learn. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say the people I've spoken with in Israel are very familiar with Israel. I do think are struck, though. I mean, we had very dysfunctional Israeli politics for the last year and a very dysfunctional society in some way caused by the politics. I put most of the blame for that on Netanyahu and his government, but others could differ. And some of the ministries being run by people who really don't know anything. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, Netanyahu himself can't do everything and maybe didn't want to, you know, he was also distracted by a million different things. And uh, uh, so I, I think the degree to which we had, a, it would make sense that um, a piece of information like that might not get treated as seriously in the government we had for the last year as as uh, before that uh, people i've talked to are very upset by this sl apparent slowness of reaction of the idf you know people got in their cars and drove south and this wonderful story of the father who helped uh, rescue his his family uh before the soldiers got there that is not the tradition in israel which has been very proud of incredibly quick now it's a small force and if they have to mobilize reserves that takes a little longer so on the one hand it, but but people are upset about that and i think that therefore i think the degree to which the warnings that the military, uh, you know, military wasn't think the disruption in the society had spilled a little bit into maybe the um, military command or relations between the civilian commanders and the military or, and then it was, it was Shabbat, it was Saturday morning, it was a holiday as well. And, you know, what would normally, you know, take happen much more quickly if it was in the office at 9.15 a.m. or even coming into the office at 7 a.m., you know, it doesn't happen as quickly if people are hard to get and some of them, uh, it's not an excuse. But on the other hand, I would say just on the flip side of that, as someone who's been to Israel a few times and admires the society in the country, I mean, it's on the, the mobilization, the speed with which everyone has rallied, the putting the incredibly bitter political divisions, which were comparable to ours, really, you know, putting them totally behind them in one day two days. And now people who uh, were denounced by Netanyahu's most radical right-wing ministers as vermin because they were protesting against what was happening there, 
uh, people who were saying maybe this is farmers maybe a little foolish that they would you know not even fulfill their reserve duty have all volunteered or all rushing or all rushing to the front. It sounds like the military again has not done a great job. This is a, you know, hard to tell because people always complain, of course, you know, in getting some of the material and other things there. And there are it reminds me of some of our uh, things in the U.S. too. Uh, reminds me a little of early COVID. You know, people have been going to store. I know an email from someone who lives there. They're going to stores. And using Amazon, have to buy things for their kids or husbands or many others, friends, neighbors who are going to the front because the military, uh, you know, doesn't have everything. Not unfair. You're mobilizing 300,000 people at once, which would be the equivalent of the U.S. of what, 10 million people. You know, you're not going to have like 10 million of everything right sitting in some in some warehouse if you don't expect it, it to have happened. So I do think there is some general sort of fits into what Tom and others were talking about, what uh, uh, Eric Elliot Cohen said, Eric reported Elliot Cohen, yeah, if you, the general sense was there was not going to have to be this kind of effort, this size effort, this uh, urgent kind of effort in the near future. People were pretty hopeful. It had been a pretty, uh, pretty good few years of disturbances on the West Bank, but nothing, you know, remotely approaching this scale. What Jake Sullivan said, Two weeks ago, which will, uh, will haunt him for a long time. The Middle East is quiet. It's very, I don't have to spend as nearly as much time on it as my predecessors did. I can focus on China and on, on Ukraine, obviously, and all that, um, which looks terrible after the fact, sort of not so un- understandable before that. I think there was a little bit of that attitude in Israel itself in a funny way. You know, we're going to focus on, we're focused on everything but the actual possibility from Gaza, especially in there. I think the disinformation campaign. Um, was very effective. They they really did seem to have convinced the senior parts of the Israeli government that they were not interested in picking another fight uh, with Israel. That there were disturbances on the West Bank. You have to worry about the North with Hezbollah. Gaza was in a era, you know, sore. It was bad, but it was not going to blow up. So the combination of all those things meant, on the one hand, Israeli the Israeli government and military, I would say, performed badly by their own standards in in the run up and in the first day. But Israeli society has really performed impressively, it seems to me, over these last few days. You know, there's an American society would not have performed this well. I think we can all agree. Right. We would have immediately devolved into we would have had a third of the country finger pointing conspiracy. Yeah, Yeah, this is more like we were after 9-11. And maybe it's a sad thing if we're not confident that we would be that way again today, which I don't know. You know, there's an asymmetry here that Hamas, I think exploited, which was, you know, Israel is startup nation, very high tech. And the Israelis, I think, overestimated their ability to deal with this issue with with technology. So they built this very sophisticated system, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, keep uh, terrorists out of Israel from Gaza with sensors and uh, drones flying around, uh, automated machine guns, um, and, you know, Hamas, you know, understood that that this was an Achilles heel in a sense, because there was not as much human eyes on the problem. And they were able to with a combination of cyber attacks uh, that disrupted the communication among the drones and from the drones back to uh, to the uh, observation posts, they were able to disable the cameras, uh, you know, with uh, uh, quadcopters dropping grenades on the observation towers. Uh, so uh, they, you know, the Israelis thought they'd put these huge barriers underground so they couldn't tunnel and they created this fence and, you know, the, you know, Hamas, you know, flew over the fence and 
disabled the the sensors and and you know went went around it um because they were focused on people not on technology and i think the israelis uh you know their strength became a weakness here yeah we're really in the sour spot for ai ai is not helpful enough to be able to actually solve problems like security but is absolutely strong enough to help authoritarian regimes suppress their own people it's uh it's really great um we talk a little bit about Hezbollah and Iran, um, because this is one of the, you know, it, it's it's strange to talk about it because it's just sort of looming out there and we don't know. Uh, how concerned are you guys about this war widening? And if it widened, does it serve anybody's interests? Because that's the real right. Does does anybody benefit if this widens up? Uh, and the, I don't know. I would start with, I'll start with you then. Um, I get the sense Iran is very, very hot to make sure that Saudi Arabia doesn't come to any sort of accord with Israel. Uh, this, yeah, so a wider war would make that even more difficult? No? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know enough about the principal-agent uh, relationships here. You know, part of me based on no specific knowledge that like if Hezbollah were part of this, they would be part of it already. And if Iran were really pulling the strings, they would have pulled all of them. Uh, and what's the point of not, uh, you know, Hezbollah is sitting on a missile um, arsenal that makes Hamas's look puny by comparison. Um, and, you know, I, we thought at the beginning of the uh, Korean war that this was actually, you know, Stalin pulling the strings and it was the massive international communist conspiracy it turns out it was actually, you know, more like uh, Kim Il-sung, who was playing Moscow and Beijing off of each other. And it was mostly his idea, and they both kind of had to support him a little bit. Um, of course, the Chinese had supported him a lot more later. The point being, Hezbollah, you know, is definitely a proxy of Iran, but isn't Iran. And I'm sure Tom knows much more about this than I do. But they definitely have some of their own some of their own interests here. And there's a reason that they appear to be staying out. And I just don't know exactly what that is. Tom, what do you think? We don't know what the calculation is. So we gotta be really careful here. I mean, one of, one of the things is that, you know, Israel hasn't even started the ground operation, at least as when we started this, uh, you know, webinar tonight, you know, and you could you could imagine scenarios where they want Israel to get mired in the conflict there was talking about this urban warfare and then unleash Hezbollah. Right. I mean, that's a scenario that's very plausible as we sit here on a, on a Thursday evening. So I'm not saying it's going to happen. I don't know. I don't think we really know. I mean, a lot of times what I found when we, we analyze these these groups and their patrons is we don't really know all the variables in their calculation. You know, we only see one or two of them and they may have five, you know, and so we don't really understand exactly everything they're thinking about. What I try and do though, is look at what um, the terrorists are saying and their sponsors are saying and for clues and you don't accept it at face value, but they do give you certain hints. Right. And, you know, you, you have Hamas officials going out there talking about how they were consulting. They have been consulting with Iran and Turkey and Russia and others, right? Well, you know, that's that's indicative of some ongoing dialogue there with their, their patrons and sponsors, right? And who knows what exactly is, is being said in those um, those conversations. So to your latter question about who benefits from a wider war, you can certainly envision scenarios, right, where Russia benefits from a wider war, you know, because basically there's less attention, even less attention on Ukraine. Um, Eric's going to know this much better than I do. It's much more of a question, but, you know, I don't know what our industrial capacity is right now for 
producing arms for Ukraine uh, and for Israel. But if you, you start splitting our needs right on, on a constrained capacity, well, that becomes a problem, could become a problem pretty quickly. So I think there are a lot of different variables here that our enemies are calculating and we don't even know all of them. And I don't want to assume that they aren't there, you know. That's such an important point. And I, I want to make the general version of it and let Eric actually knows infinitely more about this and talk about it in I'm sure in more detail. But there, yeah, this is sort of a known, there are known unknowns and then there are unknown unknowns. And I it's a good quote from Rumsfeld. And I think the unknown unknowns here are very ripe. I mean, who knows what they think? Look, they some of them want to destroy Israel. Some of them want to weaken the US as much as possible at all costs. And they don't care how many people get innocent people get killed in the course of that. If you have those two priorities, it's weaken Israel, and we just say weaken instead of destroy, but really weaken and shatter their confidence and exacerbate their domestic problems, and weaken us at a time when we don't look so healthy, and where half of the party that controls the House of Representatives seems to want to get out of uh, helping Ukraine, it isn't generally very serious about our national responsibilities. I don't know, a really bloody war that stretches out with Israel, with some U.S. involvement and hostages, and then Russia suddenly will do something maybe. How do we know, right? In Ukraine or elsewhere. I mean, I do think the degree that we are, there's a tendency to underestimate. Let's hope none of this happens. And it's kind of a, it's already terrible, but it's a manageable, terrible situation. But the degree to which things can spin out of control, either purposely or semi-purposely, or some people have a purpose for it to spin out of control. Other people are saying, well, wait a second, I'm not so sure I'm for that. But you know what? <laughs> if the IOGC decides to go ahead and I'm totally, I mean, I don't know, have a terror attack on a U.S. base in the Middle East, you know, and thinks it's a pretty good time to maybe convince everyone there to get the U.S. to get out of there. Why are there 11,000 U.S. soldiers there in, in, in Qatar? And let's just get them, you know, let's really increase the isolationist America first sentiment and rattle the, everyone here and weaken the Biden administration. And, and Putin wouldn't be unhappy about that. So there could be some assistance. Maybe something would happen elsewhere in Europe. I mean, I just think the degree to which these bad guys aren't, you know, what do you mention, China? They all get to get a get a vote. And once these things start and it becomes an unstable situation, not an equilibrium, one vote in an un, I'm mixing eight metaphors here, but one vote in an unstable situation, one act in an unstable situation then creates other acts of uh, that are, you know, in an unstable situation. And that's I think it's a very worrisome moment. I think it's a very worrisome moment. So a couple of points. One <clears throat> to build on what uh Tom and Ben and Bill have been saying. Number one. I think if this goes bigger, it goes very big. It's hard to imagine if this starts to escalate that it doesn't become a very big uh, war in the region. Um, ben was talking about um, Hezbollah's missile and rocket arsenal. It, it's estimated in open sources at 150,000 rockets and missiles. You know, Hamas just in in you know the first few days was on the verge of overwhelming the David Sling and Iron Dome system that Israel has with 5,000 of these things. 150,000 will definitely overwhelm Israeli um, you know, integrated uh, air and missile defenses and wreak just enormous devastation and danger. This is one reason why I think the Israelis are you know, trying very hard to message to both Iran and Hezbollah and President Biden is as well, don't, you know, don't go there, don't don't do this. By the same token, Hezbollah has a big calculation to make as well. I mean, the last time they got into this with Israel in 2006, Israel 
even though it's ground operations, you know, were halting at first and, uh, you know, not executed very well, um, they did wreak enormous damage on, on Hezbollah. They killed a lot of Hezbollah fighters and, and really devastated their capabilities for a number of years. And whether they want to, you know, uh, you know, bite that off again and deal with that, it, it's not at all clear, even if Iran would want them, you know, to, to go, whether they would actually you know, want to want to do that. If 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 Hezbollah lets loose, it's very hard for me to believe that Israel doesn't carry this fight uh, to Iran. They may do it in in any event because after what's happened last weekend, Israelis, I'm sure, are having conversations about what happens when Iran gets a nuclear weapon. For God's sakes, you know, Rafsanjani famously said about Israel, "It's a one one bomb country." Um, so uh, you know, th- this could go very big. I think very fast and the consequences would be enormous. I agree Russia would be a beneficiary potentially. Um, The Iranians might think they'd be a beneficiary, but they might end up being a very big loser as well, depending on how everything plays out. Because as Bill says, once this goes, it becomes very unpredictable. It's nonlinear. And the Chinese benefit from that too, right? And, and, uh, And I assume in that world, Donald Trump winds up president because gas goes up to $4.95 a barrel or a gallon and that's that's enough yeah they're um, also i can just butt in here two quick points they're also like oh, weird please. unpredictable side effects of this like if iran does end up at war then like all of a sudden it has to run a very significant repressive apparatus at home and fight a war abroad or at least partially abroad and those things are both very expensive it is a notoriously hard thing to do to do both um so, like, you know, maybe that's the end of the Iranian regime if they get into a larger war. Maybe they just don't have the capacity to do both. Those are the kinds of things we can't uh, really know. Um, the other point I wanted to make is that it is worth dwelling here on the degree to which there is sort of a... I mean, I, I try not to use the word access, but there is sort of a coordination among all the worst people in the world, right? I mean... The, the Russians and the Chinese are partners without limits. The Russians and the Iranians are now basically co-fighting a war in Ukraine. The uh, Iranians and their proxies you know, are, are Hamas and Hezbollah and the militias in Iraq. The Russians' proxies are, you know, their puppet states in Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova and Belarus. Uh, and, you know, they're all friends with North Korea and they share nuclear technology when they can. And, you know, if you were, if you were back uh, reading... Crowdhammer's, um, you know, uh, 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 unipolar moment essay, it sort of seemed like, well, eventually the United States will decline and there will be a bunch of other challengers. And I think what we're starting to see is that there's sort of a bunch of other challengers, but there's sort of one competing coalition of evil. uh, And that's really bad. I mean, that's a significantly worse situation than if all of these people hated each other as much as they hate us. There was a, a phrase to your point, Ben, that bubbled up years ago that I wrote a column on called the axis of outcasts. And what you could do was just watch who was going to the capitals and you know going to Moscow, who was going to Beijing, who who was going and being received at, you know, in a diplomatic way uh, by these you know powers that are trying to rival the US. And every 
outcast regime or terrorist outfit you could possibly imagine was you know part of this axis of outcasts that's what they were doing you know and i mean it's the same thing you know i i, I documented the fall of afghanistan for example and watching taliban officials go to moscow you know and receive diplomatic approval from from the russians was quite a moment given the whole tortuous history there in afghanistan but it speaks to the enduring power of this axis of outcasts and i i think that that's exactly right that you're we're seeing, you know, when you talk about Iran's fiscal constraints, you know, they also have cut a deal with China, a more prosperous economic deal with China. Who's to say China doesn't help them out and 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 make sure they have the resources they need to do what they need to do? You know, so it's it is very much a that access against America and its allies. Hey, Tom, you follow this the, the jihadi and and associated bad guys, their writings and so forth. How much has Iran just decided, well, we killed Soleimani and took credit for it in January of 2020, I guess it was. And, uh, you know, that's, we did it and they're not still looking for revenge. I mean, I worry a lot about, and I assume we're at high, you know, high alert and so forth. And I, again, don't want to put any, I'm not putting any ideas in anyone's mind. I worry that we underestimate how much a country like that Iranian regime wants a tit for tat on that and might regard a bunch of chaos. You know, what if they could, the base could get attacked with Americans on it somewhere in the region? We wouldn't be sure who might have done it. I mean, you know, there's so much chaos going on, right? And I, I just wonder, you know, again, we tend to assume that, okay, we got rid of this horrible guy and there was a tidy little small, you know, attempt at retaliation right then. And everyone, that's that's done. That was sort of chapter three of the book. And now we're on chapter nine. So you can't go backwards, you know, but I don't think, I'm not sure they think this chapter has ended. And I just wonder again, Putin has shown a willingness to go into other countries and kill people. I, I really, uh, maybe I'm, I hope I'm overly worried, but I, I, I just think one can't rule these kinds of things out. No, I think it's a fair point. I mean, like, look, for all the reasons you articulate and we've articulated here, you know, nobody is this perfect strategic mastermind, right? Nobody's calculating and solving all the variables, right? But uh, when it comes to this sort of thing, the Iranians tend to be patient. You know, they tend they tend to revenge is a long arc for them. It's not something that they need to do overnight. Just as the same thing for Al Qaeda or the Taliban or any, they they have a very long memory when it comes to who was who was killed and who was who were their guys you know so you could you could absolutely envision a scenario where the Soleimani brigades for example carry out a, a high profile terrorist attack that is meant to avenge his death you know that's something you could you could very much see you know i, I wouldn't be surprised if if some sort of Soleimani uh, loyalist contingent was involved in recent events quite frankly you know because the RGC's hooks are very much into these groups and that's another thing that I do not believe that the U.S. has full transparency on or really understands the extent of that. So it's another calculation here where you have to really be careful about, you know, how much of, of, of this is really, uh, you know, the, the various actors all have a say or a vote, like you said, Bill. Bill, one of the things you've been uh, optimistic about over the last year and a half or so has been the Western alliance with regard to Ukraine. And that I, nobody could have predicted how well, first of all, how swiftly and decisively it would have come together. And secondly, how well it has hung together you know, with even like the Germans really reorienting their their foreign policy very quickly. Uh, what are your thoughts about now? You know, in the case of Israel, it won't be so much an, an alliance They they won't need the, the Germans and the French and the Swedes sending them weapons. Uh, but they do need sort of approval. I, I need is the wrong word here. Uh, right now, general sentiment in the West seems to be, at least at the governmental level, largely on the side of Israel. 
how long can that hold? How long would it hold? And what does it matter? Does it matter? Does it not matter? Does it influence the, you know, the broader reliance against in uh, with Ukraine against Russia? What would talk about that a little bit for me? I mean, it's a good and I'd like to hear Eric and others on this. It's a good question, obviously. And, and traditionally, the, the sentiments been decent after one of these terrorist attacks on the West, uh, self sympathy with the victims, but then their victims in Gaza and the moves over time and sometimes it can move pretty quickly and the Israeli leaders have said in the past and you know, we have a clock we're running against uh, in carrying out these operations I but this is where I think this is such a huge moment I mean one can and this is where I'm not quite as pessimist I'm partly very worried and pessimistic I'm partly thinking you know if we succeed I mean at the end of the day if Putin fails in Ukraine and if Hamas fails in uh, law in I mean get succeeded in a ghastly way already killing Israelis I understand but if it fails in fundamentally destabilizing Israel or the Middle East and fundamentally uh, uh, destabilizing the Arab world for that matter, if it suffers lots of losses, and maybe some people even say, maybe this whole Hamas, Hezbollah way of going is not the right way to go. Sort of like ISIS failed ultimately in 2015, 16, 17, you could argue, at least for a while, right? And Al-Qaeda failed. I mean, we, we did pummel them and, and it became a less attractive option, it seems like, in many parts of the world. Uh, those things don't last forever. You've got to keep, keep doing that. Anyway, a long way of saying that if Putin fails and if Hamas fails, it could be a good moment. I mean, a terrible moment in terms of casualties and the suffering and the death, but it could be a moment where people look back and say, you know, very rough few years, but actually the, the, the democracies are showed they were tougher than we thought, you know, and Zelensky's showed uh, very young democracy, fantastic leadership and fantastic spirit and courage from the people. Israel, kind of a mess and deeply split domestically, was able to pull together and do what it had to do. European nations that have been pretty anti-Israel and pretty bad. I was going to say, levels. Europe, not historically good. No, but what if what if, it, what if there's a little bit of a turn there? You know, it has been a little surprising, the initial reaction in terms of Israeli colors on every, you know, every parliament in Israel in, in Europe and on the Eiffel Tower and stuff. So I don't, that would be the, I'm putting it too now, having been too pessimistic now, too optimistic, I suppose. But I don't think we should fully rule out the sense that if we all can pull together. But that does require us pulling together. It requires the Biden administration doing very well. And I think it's done pretty well so far, really very well in this media crisis and pretty well in general on these crises. But really taking the, as Giselle Donnelly argued in the bulwark this morning, really going up another level in terms of taking this as a serious global confrontation, uh, going up another level in terms of our own defense capabilities, diplomatic and intelligence capabilities, uh, Europeans making some of the, continuing to make some of those uh, calculations. It also involves the Israelis. Together. There's a lot to, that would have to happen, but but maybe not out of the question. Does it not, Eric, also involve the Israelis trying to rally the world to their side and not try to keep public opinion with them yes but i think the israelis uh jvl are profoundly cynical about yeah, no, me too and, about, and with good reason right uh, yeah about the international community and i i suspect a lot of the private conversations going on here i mean they've got they've done a couple of things first of all since operation cast led in in gaza in 2007 and 8 they have uh, a lot of effort into improving their ability to conduct or uh, urban uh, operations. They've doctrinally talked about um, decisive victory. Um, what I think that means actually is that they've got to go in if they go in on the ground in Gaza and get as much done as they possibly can before the international community tells them stop. And uh, because you're killing too many, you know, civilians. 
I think one of the reasons we started this conversation talking about the 6,000 uh, missiles and bombs that have been, you know, dropped in Gaza, I think one of the reasons you're seeing this extraordinary use of ordnance is because they're trying to accomplish as much in terms of hitting the uh, Hamas infrastructure as they can, you know, early on. I think, you know, again, as Elliot said on on Shield of the Republic, which posted uh, today, they're want to they're going to want to go in and kill as much of the leadership as they can kill as many of the fighters, the frontline Hamas fighters as they can. That's what they did in Lebanon in 2006. They used to, you know, they they were literally monitoring the obituaries in the Lebanese uh, uh, newspapers to try and get a sense of how many they had killed. Um, Because Hezbollah was very good about actually, you know, publishing, you know, honorifics to the ones who had been fighters. So, I, I think you're going to see that again, and I think they're going to try, as they have in the past, to avoid, you know, civilian casualties. They leaflet, they, you know, they um, use, uh, you know, megaphones to tell people to get out of buildings. They do the so-called roof knocking, where they drop dummy bombs on the roof to let people know, you know, no, no shit, you need to get out now. Um, but, you know, eventually there's going to be collateral damage. There always is in this kind of uh, conflict. And uh i i think they will get told eventually by the u.s and other allies okay now you've really gotta you know gotta stop but one one thing before i kind of yield the floor back you know uh, tom made a, a point earlier and and bill talked about giselle donnelly's terrific piece in the bulwark today um a, about you know our defense industrial base which really has withered since the end of the cold war and this is going to be a huge problem I mean, we almost ran out of precision guided munitions ourselves in 2015 when we were fighting the counter ISIS campaign. Um, we, we now are straining um, to you know, meet the needs of the Ukrainians um, and we're emptying our own larder to a degree that I think the, um, you know, the service chiefs uh, and combatant commanders are getting very nervous about in, in the Pentagon. Um, you know, if you look at Bill LaPlante, the undersecretary for uh, um, uh, for acquisition, who is working very hard on this problem, if you look at his charts, which are posted on the you know DoD website, it's going to be a while before we get to the point where we can produce, for instance, a hundred thousand rounds of one five five artillery ammunition a month, six thousand bombs in six days. You know, the kinds of consumption of munitions we've seen in Ukraine. It's just dwarfing, you know, our capacity and that of our allies. And one of the things I think that has to come out of this week, uh, you know, it's kind of been a horrible, tragic week. But if we can get something like what Mitch McConnell proposed in the Wall Street Journal the other day, you know, a big package with aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, aid for Taiwan, something on the border, um, and, and really make a big investment in, you know, increasing the capacity of the defense industrial base, it'll put us in a position to be the arsenal of democracy that I think we have to be given the challenges Ben was describing earlier of the access of the outcasts or of the access of evil, as someone once put it. All right. Uh, we're, we're coming up on time here. And so I want to wrap this up. Um, I, I just want to ask you guys to tell me what you'll, we'll go around the horn. What are you going to be looking for most just over the next week? So as we, you know, we start to 
see what's happening on the ground and get more information, maybe even get some information on what has happened. Uh, what, what are you, where are you keeping your eyes most uh, in the very, very near term? So let's, let's talk next week. Uh, Tom, I'll start with you, bud. I'd say the smallest point I'm looking at, it's really the scope of what Israel's campaign in Gaza looks like. I mean, just that's the small ball here, not minimizing it at all, but just in terms of what the the one thing that is the most measurable that we can look at to find and figure out what's going to happen. You know, what exactly are they going to do in terms of launching the ground campaign? How are they going to go after Hamas? How are they going to go after Hamas uh, assets in other countries, by the way, which we haven't really even talked about, but that's a, a thorny topic as well. Um, in addition to Iran, they also have patrons in Turkey and Qatar, of course, you know, which is a, another aspect of all this. And then a bigger, bigger scope is, is this going to, you know, in, in, you know, widen out, not just from the Israelis perspective, but from others perspectives. And that's obviously probably going to go, I'd say it's probably longer than a week long tenure, but who knows, you know. Ben, what are you, what are you keeping your eye on? Uh, I want to say one thing first is that I don't, I don't want us to get out of here without saying that um, the speech Joe Biden gave was fantastic and in fact basically everything he said so far i think has been yeah but don't you know how old he has been look i've never heard him speak that well and part of it was reading off the teleprompter and part of it appeared to be him just deciding to insert a story off the cuff and it was wonderful and i gotta say at the same time i'm slightly annoyed that it took him three hours to do that when israel was attacked and it's been 19 months since ukraine was attacked uh and he has not yet done it he clearly can so let's get to it uh, but no, the thing I'm going to be watching is um, when the Israeli emergency unity government is going to give a signal of what the goals are for this operation. Uh, because if they if they step off and they haven't announced publicly what the goals are, that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, and it doesn't need to be super specific, but it, you know they need to say, here's what we're going to accomplish. Otherwise, nobody knows. Eric. Well, I agree with what uh, Ben said about the Biden speech and also the lack of one on Ukraine. Um, I, I'm Like Ben, I'm, I'm going to be looking at how, how the Israelis describe the objectives of the operation. Uh, that's going to be a very important point. And the other is the northern border. You know, what's happening on the northern border and, and is this going to spread? I, I would ask you this quick follow up. Uh, if a week from now, the northern border is still basically inactive, is that a good sign? Like, do you think to yourself, okay, the longer we go without action there, the less likely action there is, or does that not really change? Is it just who knows, who knows, who knows? I mean, look, they could go at any time, but I think, you know, if if the ground operation is started in Gaza and the Israelis are well into it and nothing is happening on the northern border, that's, I think, a good sign. All right. Bill, you get the last word. And, you know, I, I, everything everyone has said is important and, and, and right to focus on. I guess I'm, I will also look for the unknown unknowns and whether, you know, bombs go off elsewhere in the world and explosions happen of either a, a military nature or more of a political and diplomatic nature. I mean, there's so many aspects of this. It's going to take a long time both to work out, but also even for us to process. What about Turkey as a NATO ally? And they seem to be pretty close to Hamas. Qatar, where we have, I think it's the largest American Air Force base, maybe outside the US, I don't know, it's very, very large. <laughs> um, so at least I think, uh, it's like five miles from our Air Force base, the head of Hamas is broadcasting, if I'm not mistaken, or correct me, uh, Tom, I mean, he's, he's broadcasting his television, you know, uh, appeals to 
terrorists to kill people. Now, I, I suppose that can go on for a while. The world's a complicated place. We can have uh, military assets there and Hamas can, leader could be sitting there and it doesn't <clears throat> never get twain shall meet. But I don't, the whole thing, it, the degree to which it's potentially an unstable situation, I guess, is what really strikes me. And I, I hope it it's more stable than I think, you know, because I think on the whole, most of this instability would not be for the better. Uh, well said. Tom Jocelyn, thank you so much for coming on this. Bill Crystal, Eric Edelman, Ben Parker, thank you guys. It's been a, a truly excellent show. Everybody listening in the comments, thank you guys for being your best selves, too. I really appreciate that. Uh, go listen to Shield of the Republic. New show dropped today. Uh, I have not gotten to it yet. That'll be on my Friday listen. It will make you smarter about all of this stuff. Um, everybody out there, just you know, try to be light in the world, and we'll be back here, and we'll do this again on Thursday. Bye. Thanks, everybody.